All right. Good morning, church. We are going to be in 1 Peter 3, continuing our sermon series there. Bill did such a great job last week addressing us. Amen. And we're going to pick up where he left off uh, with very similar themes together. Uh, I am so excited to preach from this text, um, and I think God has a deep word of encouragement for us today from it. So 1 Peter 3, we're going to look mostly at verses 18 through 22, but I want to back up a little bit to give some context and read from verse 13 on. 1 Peter 3, this is God's holy and perfect word. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Lord, you know that I have wrestled with this text, and you know that my strength does not match the task before that lies before me. So, Lord, I pray that like Jacob, you'd help me preach with a limp, relying on you, and that you, through your power and your faithfulness, would declare a word that lifts our eyes to the victorious Christ and grants hope and courage to those suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, around this time of year in the spring, as the spring comes closer, my wife and I tend to remember a time in our past of great sorrow. It was in the spring of 2018 when Missy and I were at the Pastors College in Louisville, and Missy had just suffered a miscarriage after trying to conceive for more than a year. And it was our second round with battling in intermittent infertility. I had no words. It's one of those times as a husband when you can just pray. That's all you can do. So I held her as we both held on to the Lord with all our strength. But one of the biggest things that actually helped Missy to come out of that place was realizing that the path of suffering is a well-trodden road. By God's grace, Johnny Erickson Tata came to town to preach or to teach at a ladies' breakfast, excuse me. 
As she recounted her story of living life as a quadriplegic in her 60s, she shined with the hope of the gospel. And as Missy heard her talk, Johnny's faith imparted faith to Missy. And as we talked after that day, Missy was different. You see, each of us are travelers on a pilgrimage in this world. But it's not an easy trail. It's filled with suffering, often for doing the right thing against opposition. But it is a trail that's marked by the tracks of faithful saints that have journeyed to the end of it. And today, brothers and sisters, we get to examine the tracks of the greatest of all pilgrimages, the journey of Christ. And what we find in these verses are some of the most compelling descriptions of Jesus' suffering and victory. But the point of the text in bringing up Jesus' steps toward the cross to die is to show us the tracks that we are to follow into suffering. And in showing us the tracks that led from the grave as he rose in victory, it's to show us the future tracks that lie ahead of us, the end of our journey. Bill did a great job last week helping us understand that we need to accept suffering for doing good. And we build on that today by seeing that we need to lift our eyes to the victorious Savior and embrace suffering, for it too will bring our victory. We lift our eyes to the victorious Savior, knowing that our suffering will produce the same victory that his suffering produced in his life. And so we have three encouragements from our text today in our suffering for doing good that come from the journey of Christ. Let's look at those together. First, his unique suffering. This is in verse 18. We are called in this passage to, to accept suffering for righteousness' sake. For, it begins in verse 18, or because Christ suffered. So as Peter begins to describe Christ's suffering, what leaps from the pages is the utter uniqueness of the suffering of Jesus. The point is that whatever you're going through, Christian, Christ has gone through worse. He faced it. And he can help you suffer well in your calling. So how was it unique? It was unique in its scope first. Peter says, he's, Peter, Peter says Jesus suffered once for sins, once for all. And in the Old Testament, countless animals had been sacrificed to grant forgiveness to Israel, but none of them ultimately had the power to permanently do away with sins. That's exactly what Christ's death was able to accomplish. He died once, and in his death, he granted forgiveness to everyone who trusts in him. And that's really amazing news. Good enough news to proclaim it week after week, right? It's good news to you if you don't know Christ as well. Maybe you're afraid that you can't be a Christian because you've done some terrible things. But there's good news for you. Christ's death is sufficient to save you. If he can save everyone from all time, from all their sins, with one death, surely he can save you. 
There is power in his blood to save you from any sin. His suffering was unique once for all. His suffering was also uniquely righteous. Peter says he died the righteous for the unrighteous. He deserved nothing that he endured on the cross. Yet he took it as the pure lamb of God. And because he was righteous when he died, he can make you righteous in the eyes of God. So that when we repent from our sins and we turn from them and we trust in Christ, we receive his perfect obedience as our covering before God. So that we are now seen by God as righteous as the Savior. So friends, nothing that you do, even as I'm preaching now, nothing that I'm doing is entirely pure. We all have mixed motives. So we, but we can suffer for doing good, knowing that there was one who suffered more, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus' suffering was also unique in its goal. Peter says he suffered the righteous for the righteous to bring us to God. Jesus was after more than merely atoning for our sins, glorious as it is, more than covering us with his righteousness, as glorious as that is, Jesus was after you knowing God, your communion with God. The goal of his suffering goes beyond your wildest dreams, not just cleanliness from sin, but relationship as an adopted son of God through the work of Jesus. So friends, as we suffer for doing good, we do so walking in the footsteps of our Savior. We march on in suffering knowing that we only sip at the cup that Christ completely drained to the dregs. We can suffer with our cross of suffering knowing we'll never have to face the cross of punishment that Jesus took in our place. But Jesus' steps in this passage don't just lead up to the cross, do they? Actually, the primary emphasis is on his victory. And that's where it leads us next. He walked from the grave. Our second point, encouragement for us to suffer well, is his triumphant resurrection. Peter says in verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Christ was put to death but now he has risen from the grave. He did not merely suffer, but his suffering in death led to his triumph in his resurrection. Now, before we unpack the significance of the resurrection, we need to consider what follows. And I'm trying to apply here a word I received from Bill Patton when I was a young worship leader. He said, you were like up here with your passion. We're all like right here. You need to kind of like meet us where you're at. I've been in this text. I'm so ready to jump to just proclaiming. But listen, there's some hard things to understand here. And we got to deal with them first. So stick with me here and really give your mind to this. The next two verses are frankly a true challenge to understand. Here's what they say, verses 18 through 20. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, commentators far smarter than me have been wrestling with these verses for many, many years. Here's what a few have said. Martin Luther knows a little bit about the Bible, or he did. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. (laughs) Just, you know, I could just stop there and be like, so... Karen Jobes wrote a great commentary on 1 Peter, and she, she just goes into this. She says, the exegetical questions basically come down to these. Where did Christ go? What did he, uh, when did he go? To whom did he speak? What did he say? Different answers to each of these questions can be found, resulting in a labyrinth of exegetical options, each of which has no clearly overwhelming claim to certainty, with one calculating 180 different exegetical combinations in theory. At which point we all have that gif where the numbers are just floating in front of our, our, our faces. So what do we do with this? Well, first we acknowledge that we are looking at some of the hardest verses to interpret in the New Testament. In humility, right? We approach it in humility. But here's the beauty of this. Even here, the overall main point of these verses is clear. Peter is encouraging us to suffer, suffer well for righteousness' sake, right? And he's doing so here by showing us that Christ also suffered and it led to his victory. So we're speaking of Christ's victory as an encouragement to us in our suffering. So let it be noted, there are multiple orthodox ways to interpret verses 19 through 20, and this four-year-old pastor is not claiming to be the authority on the issue. And let it be noted that while there is a good amount of ambiguity here, there is a ton of beautiful clarity, enough to ponder for years. Now, the majority view, and the one that I hold, is that here, Jesus declares his victory over demons in his resurrection. Jesus is declaring his victory over the demons that are held in prison in his resurrection. We see Jesus was raised from the dead in verse 18 in or by the Holy Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus declared his victory over fallen angels in that resurrection. And then from verse 20, we see that these demons appear to be angels that fell into sin at the time of Noah and have been waiting judgment since that point. So what Peter is saying is that Jesus was risen by the Holy Spirit and that in the Holy Spirit, he then proclaimed his victory over angels that had sinned during the time of Noah. Sometimes we can think that Christ's resurrection is mostly about us. Think about it. There's lots of passages that talk about how it guarantees our future bodies. It gives us hope to fight sin. All that is true. But the resurrection is first and foremost about Jesus. What this means for Jesus in his resurrection is of immense importance. He had been mocked, spat upon by his creatures. Satan had cried, victory! 
his father had turned his face away from him and poured out all his wrath on him in our place. Jesus was destitute. He was forsaken. He was dead. He endured the full wrath of God on the cross. But he rose, and in his resurrection, he triumphed, and he was vindicated. He chose to give up his glory to become a man. He chose to leave the crowds trying to make him king. He chose to remain silent when accused. He chose to remain on the cross and suffer uniquely once for all, perfectly righteous in the place of vile sinners so that he could bring all of us into communion with God. So what is the resurrection? The resurrection was God the Father proclaiming from the heavens, this is my perfect son. I accept your sacrifice. Death will not hold you down. You shall be the risen king. This was the spirit of God proclaiming over the powers of darkness. The son has won. He is risen. You have been defeated. Amen. Or as Paul says, speaking of Christ's work for us and his triumph over the powers of darkness, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and listen here, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The resurrection, in part, is Jesus triumphing over the powers of darkness. Friends, Jesus chose the path of suffering, and it became his crown of triumph. So you too can walk down this path. Verse 20 now begins to connect the Savior's victory with you and me. He tells us in verse 20, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Noah is a, is a, is a commonly known figure, right? You hear him a lot in your Bible lessons in children's ministry. But Noah endured the ridicule of the world around him as he built that ark over many years. He was likely seen as insane. But in faith, he built and his family was saved. And the waters of judgment that surged over the mountain peaks did not kill him and his family because God's mercy buoyed them to safety. Peter says that the baptism that we actually celebrated today corresponds to this. The waters that you are dipped into symbolize the judgment of death that we should have to face like the flood. And the raising of our bodies out of the water symbolizes our resurrection with Jesus Christ. Thomas Schreiner does a great job describing this. He says, the waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction and judgment are at hand. But believers are rescued from these waters and that they are baptized with Christ who has also emerged from the waters of death through his resurrection. So as Noah was saved by faith in building the ark and brought through the waters of judgment, so too 
We are saved by faith. Now, Peter is careful to quickly clarify here that baptism does not magically save us apart from faith. It's not like a Harry Potter smell, Wingardium Leviosa, and we're just saved. Baptism saves us not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's not the act of baptism that saves, but the faith that pleads with God in pursuing baptism for a clean and pure conscience. And what's the basis of this faith? Well, it's not in the strength of our conviction. It's not on our moral perfection. It's in our Lord's powerful resurrection. What does the text say? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Schreiner again sums this up beautifully. Believers have no need to fear that evil will conquer them, for they share the same destiny as their Lord. That's for you today. You're facing opposition. You're facing evil for righteousness' sake. You have no need to fear. They share the same destiny as their Lord, whose suffering has secured victory over all hostile powers. Believers then are akin to Noah. They are a small, embattled minority in a hostile world. But they can be sure that like Noah, their future is secure when the judgment comes. The basis of their assurance is their baptism. Since in baptism they have appealed to God to give them a good conscience on the basis of the work of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. So, we can suffer for doing good because of our Lord's victory in the resurrection. We share the same destiny as our Lord. And we follow His tracks into the righteous suffering and the victorious resurrection that awaits us. But that's not all this passage has to say. Our last point of encouragement to help us to walk down the road of suffering for righteousness' sake is His powerful ascension. Verse 22 is where we see this unpacked. We should suffer for doing good because Jesus uniquely suffered. And it was in this suffering that led to his triumph. And then he was raised by the Spirit who proclaimed victory over the powers of darkness. And now in verse 22, we see Jesus triumphed in his powerful ascension. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God? Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Friends, Jesus is reigning right now. He's not on a cross. He's not in the grave. He's on a throne. He's seated at the epicenter of the power of the universe. Satan dares not approach this throne. Sinners, Dare not contest against him. David prophesied in the 110th Psalm, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And our Savior is sitting at the right hand of God now reigning, as our text says, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The text started with suffering and it's led to reigning almighty 
rule. There's a day coming when we will see that rule on earth as it is in heaven. He will come forth with the mighty scepter and rule in the midst of his enemies. He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. He reigns now and will come to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. But with all this glorious relishing in the victory of Christ, don't lose sight of the hope it should be giving to you in your suffering. You share his destiny. Our suffering will give way to victory. Corey Ten Boom, someone who suffered more than most people for the sake of righteousness' sake, hiding folks who were being persecuted because of their race. This is what she said. There's no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. Whatever's happening in your life where you're suffering for righteousness' sake is not beyond the control of God. It's a specific path that has been given to you as a badge of honor, brothers and sisters, so that you might walk in the footsteps of Christ and that you might receive the crown of victory that he has prepared for you since before the world was fashioned. He is in control. Let me talk to high schoolers and college students right now. You are experiencing hostility for your faith in ways that socially are a bit unique here in this country. You're up against unbelievers in ways if you're in public schools or you're at a university. You need to know that you might feel like Noah. You might feel like you're alone. There's not many Christians on your campus or at your school. But the Lord has planned this path for you. And like Noah, he's going to bring you out of that. He's going to give you victory. College campus students, as you're sitting in that philosophy course that's just bashing God and bashing believers, you can know that that's a badge of honor to bear that for Christ. Even as Christ was mocked, you're getting a chance to walk in his footsteps. And there will be a crown placed on your head. For every step that you take. Brothers and sisters, take those steps. Let's not be fearful to run away from opposition. Let's go towards it. If we see an opportunity to stand for Christ, let's do it and know our victory is sure. Brothers and sisters, even as Jesus was crowned with honor and glory for his work on the cross, you too will receive a crown. Even as Jesus is ruling, we will reign with him. Even as Jesus will come as the focal point of the praise of the nations, we will share in his glory. Suffering for doing good is the road to victory. As I move to close, I want to share with you a story of a brother who did this well. George Matheson was born nearly blind in the mid-1800s. Shortly after completing his education to become a pastor, his eyesight completely failed. Yet he labored on in his ministry, and he became known as the blind preacher. Pretty cool title, right? You're going to walk up like, the blind preacher. Don't think it worked out that way. But he became known as someone who preached without eyesight. 
Yet despite his suffering, he had a reputation for joyfulness. It was because he saw that for the Christian, the path of suffering leads to victory. This is what he writes. There is a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitutes your pain. Nothing could be more sad to Jacob than the ground on which he was lying, a stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the season of his night. It was the seeming absence of his God. The Lord was in the place, and he knew it not. Awakening from his sleep, he found that the day of his trial was the dawn of his triumph. Ask the great ones of the past what has been the spot of their prosperity, and they will say, it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham. He will point to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph. He will direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses. He will date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, she will bid you build her monument in the field of her toil. Ask David, he will tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job, he will remind you that God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter, he will extol his submersion in the sea. Ask John, he will give the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, he will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. Ask one more, the Son of God. Ask him whence he has come, his rule over the world, and he will answer from the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground. I received my scepter there. And this is for you, Christian. Thou too, my soul, shall be garlanded by Gethsemane. The cup thou faints would pass from thee will be thy coronet in the world by and by. Friends, even in heaven, Jesus will be praised for the cross. For eternity, we will worship him as the lamb who was slain and rose from the grave. And for eternity, the pain that marks our pursuit of Christ will be our crown. Let us see the tracks that remain in the inerrant word, friends. Each step that Christ took to the cross may inspire us to embrace our cross and follow him. Each step that Christ took from the grave and every step to his throne in heaven, may it fill us with courage because we share the same destiny as our Lord. Victory is coming. Jesus will bring you through the suffering that he allows in your life for righteousness' sake as surely as Christ rose and ascended on high. So we can suffer well when we did nothing to deserve it. We can suffer for being Christians. We can lose popularity, lose political power. We can be enemies of the state. We can take the gospel to places we know we will be hated because Christ suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, and he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You might feel like a minority at work. You might feel like a laughingstock in your family because you alone believe in Jesus. But like Noah, 
the whole world may ridicule you. But Christ, who passed through the waters of wrath, will bring you safely to his Father. Amen. Amen.